Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 317. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Trauma Therapist Network. Trauma Therapist Network is a platform for finding a trauma therapist, learning about trauma, and understanding about how trauma shows up in our lives and what the healing process can look like. Go to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com to learn more. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today, I'm bringing you what I think is a very interesting conversation, and I hope that you'll find it interesting too. I'm talking with my guest today about a topic that has not been covered on Therapy Chat before, but it's something that I think all of us as humans and therapists need to be aware about. There's two aspects to this conversation. We are talking about grief and dementia, and my guest is Jill Johnson-Young, LCSW. Southern California-based Jill Johnson-Young is an internationally renowned speaker, author, clinician, and co-owner of Central Counseling Services, a large multi-therapist mental health center. Jill is passionate about helping people navigate the loss of loved ones and debunking the myth that there is one right way to grieve. Using her own experience of being widowed twice before the age of 50, along with her years of clinical work, Jill draws upon a unique blend of personal, theoretical, and clinical experiences to provide the reader with an easy-to-understand, practical approach to living life after someone we love has died. She's also the author of Your Path Through Grief, Someone is Sick, How Do I Say Goodbye, Someone I Love Just Died, What Happens Now, My Pet is Sick, It's Time to Say Goodbye. And she is a trainer, training people about grief. Her newest book is The Rebellious Widow. I really enjoyed talking with Jill. She has a very interesting personal story, and she has a ton of knowledge about both grief and dementia, which was extremely informative and helpful for me. So, When you're listening to this conversation, she's going to talk about her own story, and then she talks about the right, quote, right way to grieve, and then she explains the different types of dementia. 
and how they show up. And then also what people can do when someone they love has dementia. And then next week we'll have part two where she talks a little bit more about what people can do when someone they love has dementia and provides more resources for support. And she has a ton of resources on her websites as well. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation about subjects that are somewhat taboo for us to talk about, you know, death and dementia and end of life. But we will all reach the end of our life at some point and everyone we love is going to also. So I hope that whether you're a therapist or not, that you'll find some helpful information here. As always, I appreciate you listening. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so happy to be speaking with Jill Johnson Young, LCSW, who is the author of several books, most recently, The Rebellious Widow, A Practical Guide to Love and Life After Loss. Jill, thank you so much for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Thank you for having me. I am so have looked forward to this for quite some time now. Me too. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I'm excited to talk to you because here on Therapy Chat, I've actually been wanting ever since 2019 to bring grief more into the forefront of our conversations because it's not something that I really knew a lot about, but have come to have my own firsthand experiences with learning a lot more about it over over the past couple of years. And But I wanted to say too, that you are also a specialist in dementia, which is another topic I'm super interested in and I think is under-recognized by therapists. So I think that I can't wait for everybody to listen to this and, and learn. But before we get into that, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little more about who you are and what you do. Thank you for that. So I am in private practice. I co-own Central Counseling Services in Riverside, Marietta and Corona, California, with Sherry Shockey Pope. Oh, um, I know her. Yes, you do. Yeah. And um, we get around the two of us <laughs> in so many ways. But I, I specialize in grief and loss because I worked in hospice for a really long time in two states. I've written books for children because as a hospice social worker, I could never find books that actually talked about how people really die and had pictures of people, not animals or mm-hmm. trees that withered or, you know, that sort of thing. And I specialize in dementia because in hospice, as in life, there are so few who actually know dementia. So as a hospice social worker, I actually started a dementia support group at a local retirement community that, you know, we made a deal. I got a room and cookies and they got to advertise that they had a dementia support group, but it's community wide. Mm -hmm. And then I brought all of that into the private practice when I retired from actively working and went into really working even more actively um, <laughs> in the office and book writing and doing presentations and whatnot. I am also an ex-subject expert in grief because I have not only worked in grief and loss and been a director of social services for a large hospice, but I've been widowed twice. My first wife, Linda, died after 23 years of pulmonary fibrosis, secondary to breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then while she was dying, she became good friends with her hospice nurse, who was named Casper. Yeah, we had the friendly ghost. And as they became closer, Linda started announcing she wasn't about to die unless Jill agreed to marry Casper and Casper agreed to marry Jill. 
And we both said, you know, shut up. We're, this is all about you. I don't, where is this coming from? Um, and it turns out she was right. And so we married after Linda's death. Oh my gosh. Um, and yeah, broke all the freaking widow rules. And that never goes over well, just saying. <laughs> um, but then six months into our marriage, we were on the lanai in Hawaii and her coffee cup flew out of her hand and skittered across. And she said, I had these weird dreams last night. And that was the onset of Lewy body dementia, which is, which comes on with both Parkinsonism and dementia and psychosis all at the same time. It's why Robin Williams took his life. He didn't take his life because of depression. He took it because he was in the throes of the absolute craziness. And I do mean that clinically of Lewy body. And so I've been a caregiver twice. And then because I broke the widow rules, I lost a good portion of my support system. And so during Casper's death, um, I had my best girlfriends and then I had some others. My brother-in-law came to help, but um, the funeral director who I'd met with Linda to make her arrangements had become friends with the Jill and Casper couple. And she started seeing blogs that I was writing. I write blogs as self-defense when someone in my family's dying. Cause that way I don't have to communicate. I write the blog. It's funny. It's lighthearted. It gives you the information and you can read it or not, respond to it or not. I really don't care, but it means I don't have to answer your phone calls or texts or emails. Mm. It's up there. And I would post on social media with fun stuff, but also made it clear what was going on. So Stacy, the funeral director started coming around to help. And um, at the very end, when it was just so exhausting, you know, she'd come in after working all day and she and my brother-in-law Jay would hang out with Casper and I would get a nap in before I'd be up all night and then have to go back to work the next morning. And so, yeah, now Stacy and I are married. So I'm double widowed and married to the funeral director. So I, I am all the grief, all the loss and all the dementia, all in the same person and caregiver too. And all the love and all the love. And my mom currently has dementia. So I'm my daughter and I are the primary folks helping to care for her. We moved next door to her so that she could stay home. And Stacy is, in fact, currently staying with her dad who is 90 and needs help because he is frail. So we, we are the caregiver family and we love having the time that we do with our loved ones to have that extra time to do the things that we want to do with them. Wow. Thank you for sharing that incredibly winding journey that you've had <laughs> to getting to this point with many highs and lows in that brief description. You know, it's possible to have loss and, and grow from it. And certainly that happened for me that we opened the private practice six months after Linda died and it's grown and grown and grown through the course of all of this, these changes in my personal world. I'm, and I'm really transparent about it because I want grievers to see that it is possible, even with all the things that are involved in loss, to be able to use that to reshape your world and to find joy again. Mm -hmm. And it's possible when you're coping with dementia to still be able to laugh and find some good times in the midst of some of what is not always a good time. Yeah. Well, I, I have a million questions just based on that, what you just shared. Thank you so much for sharing those love stories and losses. And, you know, it's, I can picture, I, I feel like I have a glimpse of what that might be like. And one of the things that you mentioned there, I guess I'll ask you about this first is you mentioned breaking the widow rules. 
And your book is called The Rebellious Widow. So can you tell us a little bit more about that idea of the widow rules? I've definitely, I feel like- Probably went across them, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've seen where people are getting like um, backlash when they're breaking someone's spoken rules. therapists. That's the sad part. Mm -hmm. It used to be back in the day, and I can say this because I was part of back in the day. I started out as the first social worker for our local AIDS project that will date me somewhat. Yeah. And what we were taught in the programs that hospices purchased to do grief and to do grief in the community was you tell people to not make any changes in their lives for a year, no new relationships for a year, don't do X, Y, or Z, right? It was supposed to be all about living in grief and surrounding yourself with the grief for that first year, which I find to be totally toxic and not life affirming. Mm. And it makes me feel like I'm supposed to tell people to be Eeyore, right? You've got your support system, but you're still supposed to stay in Eeyore status. The widow rules are don't laugh too much. Don't smile too much, but don't look too sad because then you're going to make people feel sad around you. Do not make any changes. Do not date. Do not be seen in public with someone who might be considered a date. Do not embrace life again for at least a year because it's unseemly. And I mean, I got it from therapists too, because I'm a therapist. We go to therapy, right? So someone dies, you go see a therapist. And both times the therapists who held themselves out as grief therapists had no idea what they were doing Mm -hmm. and knew nothing about dementia either. After Casper died, there was just no understanding of what that had been like for me. And there was no understanding of caregivers, in particular, intimate partner caregivers who've gone through a long loss process. Those folks have done so much anticipatory grief yes, that they are so done with most of the grief within the first few months after the loss. They are ready, many of them, and this is not all of them, and this is not an expectation that they should do this because there are no shoulds, but if they want to reach out and find someone to hold on to while they're finishing their grief process and re-embracing life, they're not supported by their community or their therapist to do so. I was tipped off to the widow rules by another LCSW who was also a widow um, and was widowed by a good friend of mine. And she took me out for coffee a week after Linda died and said, I'm going to tell you about the widow rules because you need to know them because I know you're going to break them and you are going to get backlash and you need to be ready. And her first rule was, if you're going to go have coffee with Casper, as Linda asked you to go to another town, do Mm. not be seen in town doing that. Our community is 450,000 people and it's a small town. And so she was right. We, we had to leave town and hide out because I was breaking widow rules. Yeah. And then after Casper died, of course, I broke them again. And the interesting thing is Casper's family was totally okay with it because they saw Stacy step in when Casper was ill and because they knew what I had been through. And so in that instance, I had really strong support for the decisions I was making. And I didn't hear as much of the, you're disregarding her memory. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of that after Linda died. And my clients get that. And, and they also get well, you're not doing the stages right. And then we have to talk about the stages belong before someone died. It's not part of after someone died. And for my dementia families, we have to, we talk about how much they've been through and how tired they are and how important it is for them to acknowledge everything that they did and that they did everything to the best of their ability and that any criticism they're getting right now is not theirs to own. I do think that people have those 
they have those beliefs too. And then when it's said from the outside, it, there's so much shame because it's like, oh, I knew I was wrong to want love. But, you know, I know people who've sat by the bed of their partner who, you know, was dying of cancer, for example, for two years. And then, so they've had, you know, their partner's illness has taken them away in a lot of ways from being a present partner. Mm -hmm. And certainly the sexual intimacy, emotional intimacy, because everything's focused on the dying person, which is okay. That's, that's right for that to be the way it is to some extent. Except that the focus should be on them as a couple. Yeah. And that's something that I train hospices about is when, when a couple is dying, it's not one person, it's the couple that's dying Mm -hmm. because afterward only one is going to be there and they're not going to be a couple anymore. And so we need to foster that coupledom all the way through. And that goes with dementia loss too. As a couple is being separated by dementia, we need to support that couple in being able to be considered a couple for as long as humanly possible Mm. because they still are. Yes, they're the caregiver, but they were married to this person. Right. Right. They fell in love. They had a life. Let's foster that. So yeah, that that's another angle there. I wasn't, you know, you, this is your expertise. When when you get me talking about this stuff, it can go anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, and it's wonderful, but I guess what I was going to say is like for the partner who wasn't dying, that it's natural that they would want to have emotional and sexual intimacy again. And Mm -hmm. so to have not been able to have it for that amount of time as, uh, as they're going through this anticipatory grief process. And then when their partner is gone for them to find someone else somewhat shortly after they may feel guilty and ashamed about that, but mm-hmm. it's their need it and is their need. other people are judging them for that. But, and if they've been doing dementia care, it hasn't been a short time. The average dementia caregiver estimates that they will spend six to eight years as a caregiver, as opposed to people who are caregiving for someone who has some other kind of physical illness, then they estimate between two and three years. So dementia caregivers are exhausted and they've been through loss after loss, after loss, after loss, and they need to have that acknowledged. And and while they're in the dementia process as therapists, we need to know what we're doing with that so we can support them in it. Can you say a little more about that loss after loss? I think it's like, I get what you're implying, but I think it'd be nice to really just make it explicit. With dementia, the person who has dementia typically hides that they have any symptoms from everyone else for about two years on average, according to the research. And the partner is, or the family is watching and sort of recognizing something's wrong, but nobody wants to see dementia because we're all scared of it. It's the one illness everyone is terrified of. We can think kick cancer's people, ass, but we right. can't do that with dementia, right? Dementia is that thing that is like the scary thing you don't want to happen because it seems like there's nothing that can be done. There's, it's just like, almost seems hopeless, I think, to some people. And that's why 50% of doctors never tell patients that they have dementia, which I think should, you know, flag under every malpractice law on on the planet, but they don't because the doctor feels helpless 
and they know they can't fix this. They can slow it down for one of the 12 dementias. They can't slow down any of the others. There is no treatment. There is no cure. And I don't care what the Alzheimer's Association says about we have the first survivor out there. To me, that's not fair. That's false hope. I would like to think that we've got a survivor somewhere out there. But anybody who's currently facing dementia that's active, that's not their loved one. They are facing the long haul with dementia right now. So there's the date of diagnosis, which is the first big loss because your world changes. And then as dementia goes along, there's loss of abilities that are small, that get bigger. There's loss of driving privileges, loss of executive functioning, which means paying the bills. If it's early onset, which is the fastest growing group, Mm -hmm. then it's loss of ability to go to work eventually, which means early retirement, which means loss of income. If you even have retirement. And if you have retirement, if you don't, you're going to fight for disability because social security is a red hot mess right now and worse now after COVID, right? And trying to get disability for dementia can be very difficult because doctor's records are not always what they need to be. And doctors don't order all the tests that they need to. Because they know what it is. Why should they do X, Y, Z? And I'm not dissing doctors other than they need to be much better at spotting and diagnosing dementia, all of them, and especially neurologists. The person with dementia is put through a whole diagnostic process, which is dehumanizing. There's many mental status exams, one after the other. There are maybe MRIs. There should be MRIs. There are sometimes testing that is also dehumanizing There's lots of questions about, can you do this? Can you do that? And that gradually shifts to talking over the person with dementia and talking to the caregiver who's been identified, not the person with dementia as if they're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to turn my back so that if we were at the hospital, it was a test day, they had to talk to my wife and not to me. I was of course listening, but they had to talk to her, even if she was going to forget 10 minutes from then, she deserved that respect. Yes. But as the caregiver, you lose the ability to protect your loved one from the dehumanization and the, the unintentional cruelty of others. The person with dementia faces people doing things like, do you remember me? Do you know who I am? They find holidays to become scary and overwhelming because so many of us make holidays so big and guilty as charged until a few years ago. Guilty as charged. I had huge holidays. People with dementia can't tolerate big crowds because they they can't tolerate the input. They can't tolerate the length of time. They can't tolerate being awake that long. They can't tolerate small people running around them. If they've got psychotic features, then they're scared. Those are going to come through and they're going to be disruptive. It's a whole big ball of wax to do holidays with someone with dementia. And for the person with dementia, they lose the ability eventually to use fork, knife, and spoon the ability to recognize food on a plate, the ability to hold a glass like they used to, the ability to swallow safely. They'll pocket food in their mouth as the disease progresses, and then it becomes a choking hazard. It's it's a million little losses. They lose words. They lose memories of places and people and things. One thing you mentioned before mm -hmm. fits into this holiday part was taste and smell. Mm -hmm. Taste and smell is the first, thank you, the very first loss with dementia. And most people who have it don't really notice it's happening because it's a slow onset as opposed to COVID, which I've had. Me too. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And you do lose it suddenly. You can taste and then you can't, you can smell and then you can't. And with COVID, sometimes it comes back in weird places. Sometimes it feels like everything tastes like swamp water still. 
right? With dementia, it just goes away. And so the only foods that taste good are salty and sweet, which upsets people in the family who are like the food police and want everyone to eat kale, which should be illegal anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I could see people being really focused on you're ill right now. So you need nutrition. You need a healthy diet to help you. You can't change the trajectory of dementia. You can fight cancer. You can't fight dementia. So, and, and there are no cures. I'll just put that right out there. There is no cure. There is faster. There is slower. There is no cure for Alzheimer's. There are some meds that can slow it down some of the time for Parkinson's. We now have a new medication that seems to help some psychosis some of the time. There is nothing else. If you've got frontotemporal disease, we can't stop it. If you have dementia because of vascular disease, we can't stop it. It's all, if it's there, it's there. So you, you, mm -hmm. I'm sorry for interrupting, but you mentioned there are 12 types and as you're, can we go through them? And you mentioned Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, frontotemporal, Lewy body, which is particularly cruel. Frontotemporal happens to younger people. The vast majority are under 60. And because of the way it behaves, people tend to get themselves arrested because they lose their stop because that's what our frontal frontal lobes do, right? They help us stop and you're not stopping. So you reach out and grab people without any thought process Mm. or seeming to care, which doesn't go over well. I'm remembering Um, that woman recently who I'm sorry mm -hmm. that I don't remember her name, but she was arrested when, and she had dementia and she was, the police were violent with her because they thought that she was being violent, but she was, she she didn't understand understand what was going on. And they injured her. She ended up with permanent faster dementia process, which is horrible. Yeah. She had a broken, at least one broken bone too. Yeah, she did. She did. Um, And her family was rightfully outraged. there's dementia from um, head injuries and that's not just football players, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It actually affects more cyclists and soccer players, but we should be looking for that in people who've survived child abuse too, and domestic violence and war because, and car accidents. Anyone who's got a TBI, I guess. Any TBI, right? I have a daughter, my youngest daughter, all my kids are adopted. My youngest daughter was thrown against walls repeatedly as an infant and toddler. And she already has some memory loss and has to use a lot of different techniques to cope with it. And so something we've talked about openly at our house as to what's probable in her future. And that's not something social workers and CPS think about, but it's something we need to think about and something that legislators need to think about, right? We have syphilitic dementia, which is actually not that uncommon because people can have syphilis and not know it. That's why the first blood test when someone's getting a dementia workup is for syphilis, which tends to upset the spouses because they don't understand why we're looking for syphilis, right? There are, there's uh, Parkinson's related dementia. We have Wernicke Korsakoff, which is related to thiamine loss and some, and drinking most, much of the time. Alcohol. Um, alcohol. We have mad cow disease, which is, there's actually a portion, there's a part of that that's actually, it's spongiform encephalopathy. Say that three times fast. That's actually inheritable. Some of, uh, about 10% of that is an inheritable trait. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then we have the one that Woody Guthrie had and Arlo Guthrie had, which is completely escaping me right now, but it's, it's something, it's Huntington's Korea. So that causes dementia. And that one is a hundred percent inheritable. 
And it doesn't show up until someone is into their childbearing years. And so typically their kids have already been born by the time they realize that they both have the double recessive and that they've given it to their kids. Mm. So those are the, the big highlights. I'm sure I'm missing a couple in there. I can give you the whole list to put the show notes if you want. I got 11. So okay, so I'm missing one, one in there. Missed, There's but... one missing. Sorry, guys. <laughs> that's not bad for a Friday. Wow, no, right? that's some incredible. And I had no idea there were so many different types. I've heard, of course, of everyone's heard of Alzheimer's. Yeah. And then oh, mixed dementia. That was the last one. Mixed. Because most people don't have just one. They have multiple dementias. They have Alzheimer's plus Lewy body. They have Alzheimer's plus vascular. There's all kinds of things that can be mixed in dementia. It's very uncommon to have just one dementia. Wow. Right? That, that I did not have any clue about. Mm-hmm. And we don't tell people about right? because doctors aren't talking about it anyway. And Alzheimer's is the number one in part because it depends on who puts one on the death certificate. It's not so much what we absolutely know. It's what does the doctor put on the death certificate? And if it's a doctor who just slaps Alzheimer's on it, then suddenly we have an outburst of Alzheimer's somewhere. It's simply because of the, um, the death certificate process. Wow. Yeah. Hey friends, it's Laura Reagan here. Wanted to take a second to talk to you about Trauma Therapist Network. I've really been thinking about our community call we had on January 31st, which was so fun and so inspiring. Every time I get together with this group of trauma therapists who are members of TTN, even though the whole group doesn't attend the community calls, even though everyone could, we had about 15 people this time and just being so curious about the different ways everyone practices and the different specialties. Some of the things people are doing is are so interesting. And I just love knowing that people who are looking to get started with trauma therapy can find a variety of different ways that people practice. Uh, we don't have a huge number in each place yet. We don't have one in every state yet, but I hope that it will continue to grow. And I wanted to take a minute to welcome some of the new members. So I'm going to tell you just briefly about them and thank them. Lori Eldred, LMSW and CAADC in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thank you, Lori, for joining. We've been friends on social media for a while. Carol Williams, LMFT in Toluca Lake, California. Let's see, I wanted to double check Carol's profile. Yes, yeah, she's also licensed in Utah, which is really awesome. Dominique Mann, LCSWC, who is a member of my practice, the newest person who have joined our practice, and we're so happy to have her with us. She's a uses a mind-body perspective as a yoga teacher, in addition to specializing in trauma, using a strengths-based approach. Elizabeth Kautsky, LPC in Grand Junction, Colorado. Molly Molinax, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly, Molly, who's an AMFT, and she's in Oakland, California. Adrian Collar, LPC, LCDCI, CCTP, NCC, <laughs> is in San Marcos, Texas. Megan Yount 
LCSWC in Baltimore. Thank you for joining. She uses EMDR, polyvagal theory, IFS, and specializing with PTSD, CPTSD, sexual assault and abuse, dissociation, and childhood trauma. Renee Giordano, who is in Fishkill, New York, serves the whole state of New York with virtual sessions. Thank you, Renee, for joining. There are a lot more people. I will not get to everyone today, but I wanted to take time to mention a few of you today, and I'll get to naming some others next time. Abby Streets, LPC Associate in San Antonio, Texas. Julie Miller in Crofton, Maryland, LCPC. She used one of my favorite quotes from Carl Rogers. The curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I could change. I love that. It's so true. Erica Juarez, PhD, who is in California, and she is, she uses an integrative approach as well. Erica Berg, who is an art therapist in LCPC in Chicago. Sarah Zwanowski, I hope I pronounced that right, Sarah. LCSWC, she's in Severna Park, Maryland, same place where my practice is. She specializes in grief, navigating chronic and or terminal illness, traumatic incidents, and more. Krista Verastro, who is a prior therapy chat guest, a dance, or she's a drama therapist, and she's in Reisterstown, Maryland. Sarah Thompson, LGPC in Bethesda, Maryland, works with children, adolescents, and families. Andrea Boyd, LCSWC in Silver Spring, Maryland. She is opening her practice. TJ Maton, LCSWC, who used to work in my practice, Someone that I know very well. She has her own practice now in Annapolis called Windows Into Healing, and she specializes in perinatal mental health and complex trauma. Kelly Gordon, LCSW in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. She's a member of my trauma therapist consultation groups. I've gotten to know very well. She works with children in Delaware, much needed. Laura Winters, LCSW PMHC. So she's a perinatal mental health specialist as well in Chatham, New Jersey. And she works with trouble conceiving, pregnancy and infant loss, and anything less than postpartum bliss. And last for today, but definitely not least, Kimberly Perlin, LCSWC in Towson, Maryland. She's also a member of my consultation groups and she's awesome therapist specializing in PTSD, depression, and anxiety using EMDR. So I will get to some other names on the list next time. I just wanted to thank you all, you new members of Trauma Therapist Network, and welcome you to the community. I know trauma work can be heavy, and that's why we need community, but we can also find joy in the gift of being able to do this healing work, going through our own healing journeys ourselves, and knowing that we are part of a movement that is really needed in this time. So I'm grateful to all of you for being part of it. And everyone else who's a member of Trauma Therapist Network, thank you. For anyone who is wanting to find a trauma therapist, could choose one of these wonderful people or someone else who is in the directory at traumatherapistnetwork.com. Let's get back to my conversation with Jill. Okay, so I've been aware of the caregiver stress issue, but I think that it is something that's like less recognized as because 
I remember reading that one study found that people who were caregivers for their partner who had dementia were something like, you know, 80% likely to meet the criteria for PTSD. So, you know, just that indicates that it's a, it's an inherently traumatic type of experience to have. In fact, maybe I'll ask you about this. It's okay if you don't know, or there's no connection that you're aware of, but I've been curious about the connection between childhood trauma and dementia. I mean, you mentioned like physical abuse trauma, but I wonder if, you know, somehow it makes me wonder, you know, when there's dissociation and then like in dissociation, as I would normally see it as an adult comes to therapy who has a childhood trauma history. And at times those memories from the past come back to the present. That's their trauma symptoms. Mm -hmm. But it's, it looks to me like people who have childhood trauma, who maybe never have those flashbacks, or maybe they do during their adult years, but then in older adulthood can almost seems like they go back to just being in where the dissociation is instead of in this present life. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's my do, own little weird like interpretation of what could could be going on, but I don't understand. And I don't know if you know, because I know there have been some studies that have said there's a connection between childhood trauma and dementia as an elderly I think it's, I think it's what, from what I've seen, it's, and this is my interpretation. It's not scientific. Yeah. It depends on where the dementia is hitting, what parts of the brain it's hitting and whether, sense. and if, if it's hitting in a specific part of the brain where perhaps some of those memories are associated and then something triggers them that they don't understand because with dementia, you do lose the ability to understand visual input and process it cognitively or audio input and process it and to process it verbally. And with childhood abuse, depending on the age, you know, kids frequently don't have the words or the power to process. And I think those, that level of dysfunction, confusion, fear does kind of a mind melt. Yeah. I could be completely wrong, but I, I'm, that's my, been my experience. Yeah. Well, yes. And I understand that that isn't scientific, but I mean, I think there's something to be said for what you witness and what you understand and how you can see something. You may not be able to fully explain it, but yeah. Because we don't know what their brain is doing. I mean, right. if we had fMRIs going, you know, and we could do some yeah. of that, oh, it would be amazing. But we have these, you know, funky little committees that tell us what we can and can't do anymore. Traumatizing people dementia is probably on the no list. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. I don't think we should go and yeah, traumatize I'm, people. I'm I just agree. joking. I do have a weird <laughs> twisted sense of humor with the work that I do. <laughs> yeah, I I get that need, the need for that, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Humor is a coping skill. Yes. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you were talking about when you and I were talking before we started recording is how, and this is sort of what you were mentioning just in that moment a second ago was how the where in the brain the process is happening makes a difference. So like when you mentioned all those different types of dementia, some were specific types and some were more general, like people who've had head injuries or things like that. But, you know, are there ways that the different types, you know, affect people differently that we wouldn't recognize or did the, the list of symptoms Every that dementia you gave... is very unique. They all end up at the end, the same way they all end up with somebody not being able to function in all their ADLs, activities of daily living. 
They all end up eventually with someone bedbound. They all end up eventually with someone being unable to process food without great stress. They all end up with changes in vision and cognition. It depends on the kind of dementia as to what takes place. The two outliers are frontotemporal and Lewy body. Frontotemporal because it doesn't involve memory loss. Hmm. And Lewy body in that you do have memory loss, but you come back and you remember the memory loss and you become psychotic, but you come back and you remember the psychotic break. Hmm. There's a man named Norm Mack who lives in Ireland and he has written a couple of books because he's a long-term Lewy body patient. He's not a survivor and he's going downhill now much more rapidly than he was, but he's written books about what it was like to experience being in those psychotic breaks and seeing what he's doing to his wife in particular and not being able to stop it or to reach out to grab reality, but knowing he's not part of reality. And um, he's online all the time. So he'll come back and say, I'm sorry, I was gone for four days. It was a really bad weekend and my poor peg has just been put through the mill. And she could probably use some nice emails from all of you because the, the Louis body community is a kind of a tight knit little worldwide bunch in some ways, um, depending on what groups you're in. So there Louis body is, is particularly cruel in that, you know, that you are checked out. My late wife used to get messages through the TV from the NCIS crew when Jethro was the one who controlled what our day was going to be like. And if anybody talked while he was talking at the beginning of the show in the morning, you know, all hell broke loose because we didn't know what the requirements were for the day. At other times in the middle of the night, there were bad guys coming through the walls and there were doors that didn't exist or, you know, and then the next day she'd say, I was gone again, wasn't I? I did it again, didn't I? So that's, those are the outliers. Alzheimer's, um, it starts with loss of ability to learn new skills, executive functioning deficits, and then it cascades from there. But Alzheimer's can go slow, fast, intermittent. It's always downhill, but there can be lots of plateaus or no plateaus. Mm. There's some research that shows that it depends on how many genes are involved because our, our genes are not those nice, neat 23. There are thousands of subgenes on all those trees. It looks more like a tangled mess of roots. If there's a lot of those roots involved, your Alzheimer's is going to be a big, bad, ugly one. There's a specific gene for early onset um, oh. with Parkinsonism. With Parkinson's, you may or may not have dementia, but if you do have dementia, it's Lewy bodies that are causing it, but they invade the brain later. So it, it's all of them are slightly different, but they're, that we go from mild cognitive impairment, anybody with dementia, which is something that anybody can have. It's associated with aging. That's where you forget things occasionally. You lose things occasionally. 50% of with MCI will go on to develop a full-blown dementia. 50% will just stay in mild cognitive impairment. Whether or not it's going to be you that's going to have it, it's genetics. It's the way your vascular system works. It's, it's a wild, wide variety of things. And as much as we know, we don't know. You know a lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually into genealogy. So I, I did do all. And when I was diagnosed with celiac disease earlier this year, I was like, okay, do the medical stuff. And sure enough, it came up with late onset Alzheimer's. I'm not surprised. All the seniors in my family have had dementia and um, back three generations, dementia is on death certificates. So I have absolutely no doubt it's correct. I have designed my walker 
to match my teal blue hair and it will have some glitter attached and some lights and there will be a wine serving tray welded onto it. <laughs> I am ready for this. <laughs> so you're saying that you've had genetic testing that tells you that you will have late onset Alzheimer's? I have the genes for it. Okay. Yeah. We don't have a lot of gene studies for the other ones. Alzheimer's is the one with the money. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got the big machines, they've got the big research the money that gets thrown from the federal government tends to go mostly to Alzheimer's. And the theory is that'll cascade down to the other dementias, but every dementia is a different brain process. So in that sense, I'm lucky because Alzheimer's is what my family runs to, but you know, it saddens me for those with frontotemporal and Lewy body and all the other ones that don't have as much money going their way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you say something? There's one thing that you mentioned that I don't think you explained in depth before, which is when you said vascular Mm -hmm. dementia. Can you talk about what that is? If if you have a stroke and it's big enough, you can come out of that stroke and already be in dementia. You can have a series of TIAs, trans-ischemic accidents that leave damaged pathways. Any of those kinds of damages to your brain related to your vascular system can in fact trigger dementia. And then every subsequent will be an even greater, and then the dementia can just take off. So the vascular dementia is related to strokes. Are TIAs considered strokes? Yes. I know well, they they're, call them they're mini strokes. strokes. I wasn't sure if it was they're real. They're mini strokes. Yeah, they're trans-ischemic accidents. So they resolve themselves, but they have the potential to still trigger. Okay. Because you're still experiencing some brain damage. Yeah. Right. Wow. I had a stroke several years ago. It didn't damage memory so much. It damaged my ability to stand up and not fall down sometimes because it wraps around the, the um, balance system in my brain. But I do know that I don't work now after 6 p.m. because I have to monitor how much use of language I have as I'm tired because I spend so much of my brain energy making sure that my world looks like it's straight up and down, not off to the side by 15 degrees, which is the way my brain does interpret it. So strokes can do a remarkable amount of stuff to our brains that we can overcome, but the cumulative effect can result in dementia at some point. I'm holding out for Alzheimer's. I, I want that after 85 Alzheimer's. That's my, that's my goal. I've got <laughs> stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that just made me think of another thing that we talked about before we started recording that I think would be valuable for people to hear. I don't think you said it during the time when we've been recording, cause I'm jotting down so many notes on what you're talking about, but you you mentioned gait as a factor in mm-hmm. or a symptom. Yes, it's an absolute indication. When someone is having difficulty with walking, when somebody is falling inexplicably, get them to a neurologist. Yeah, you go to your primary care, but you don't want someone to say something like, oh, well, they probably just twisted their ankle. If they are having difficulty with gait and their appetite has changed, or they're losing things occasionally, you want to get to a neurologist and you want to get a brain scan done because you want to make sure that you know what that brain is looking like right now. Is it shrinking? People with dementia fall, they lose their balance, they list to one side. It's it's a well-known part of the process of the brain deteriorating. And people with dementia don't like using any more than anyone else, any kind of assistive devices. And they're told to use them, but they don't want to. Mm-hmm. I have a, a dear friend now named Father John. He does a radio show. I'm on there with him once every six, eight, 10 weeks. He's been diagnosed with dementia and he's been using the show to do some education about dementia. 
And I walk in, I'm using my cane. I can't see his, you know, where is it? He's, I just feel so old using it. We are the same age. Get your, I'm going to bring you one and it's going to be flashing and red. And it's going to completely clash with that collar you wear Mm -hmm. to look all clerical and stuff. So you had better start using that cane of yours. Yeah. People with dementia do have an altered gait and people, especially with Parkinson's related dementia, and with Lewy body dementia, those folks have the greatest difficulty with gait. Parkinson's, you tend to freeze. You're walking and then suddenly you're not. And Parkinson's and Lewy body, when they're falling, they don't even know they're falling. They mm. don't have a sensation of falling until they're almost all the way to the ground, which is really dangerous. Because they can't stop themselves. Right, right. And couple that with vision changes, with peripheral vision changes, you know, put someone like that on a set of stairs and you are really, really asking for trouble and damage. So that that means houses have to be modified or people have to move, which is another loss with dementia. Right, right. And the changes for older people making changes can Mm -hmm. become so stressful. They can be. Like they really not driving can. or not living in their same home. And it can become And if like, someone's got dementia and then you have to move them, it's disorienting. And when you move someone with dementia, they do lose ground permanently. Sometimes you have to move them anyway for safety. Right. Some people don't have a caregiver and they have to go to that memory care unit. Or sometimes the caregiver is too frail and can't do it anymore. And they have to use some kind of facility or adult daycare even. And that can be disorienting. You know, I see, this is like my own experience, personal experience. I see, well, having worked in a hospital, I see one thing I saw a lot was a partner who was a caregiver and their spouse had dementia. And the partner was really filling in the gaps for their, their partner with dementia so that it doesn't, it sort of masks how well the person is functioning. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one major thing that I think can interfere with families being able to, I don't know. I mean, and as I talk about it, I'm like, does something need to be done when you find out someone has dementia? But like you said, getting a brain scan is important because you need to know what you're working with. Actually, that was something we talked about before too. (laughs) And and the other thing it's important for is folks with Lewy body dementia can't take some medications because it can cause a reaction that's fatal. So you need to know if you have that. Right. It causes a high fever and very rapid death. And so you have to know if you've got Lewy bodies in there and that does require an MRI. And no, I'm not a doctor and I'm not prescribing and I'm not providing medical advice. This is boots on the ground. This is stuff people have to do. And you can find it on the websites from the eight, from the various associations. But yeah. Well, and that's what, I mean, I think for families who might suspect, like you said, or partners who might suspect that something's going on with their partner, like you don't even know what to ask. You can tell something's wrong, but you don't know what it is and you don't know how to find out what it is, you know? And so what I recommend is actually keeping a really clear notebook. Mm-hmm. And if there are multiple family members filtering in and out, everybody keeps one and writes down what they're seeing. The little things. Did mom remember where the bread was? Did dad struggle with you know, making coffee this morning. Did the coffee maker not make sense? My mom has wrecked three coffee makers in three months. I'm buying stock in Mr. Coffee now because those K-cups just defeat her, but she she can't remember quite to use the sleeve and the coffee maker and the, oh, it's just ugly. 
poor mm-hmm. coffee maid girls are being murdered left and right next door. Mm-hmm. I can hear them screaming. So, <laughs> you know, you want to keep track of those kinds of things. Did the stove get left on? Was the heater on even though they were hot? Were they up all night? Because sundowning is a really clear indicator someone has dementia. Can Are you they talk about all... what sundowning is like? Sundowning is, that's no, it's my fault. I sort of assume it. Sundowning is when days and nights get mixed up. And so when the sun goes down, they get up. And when the sun gets up, they go down and they are sometimes frenetically busy. It's like watching a kid with ADHD who's got free reign or someone who's in a manic phase and they leave that those piles of activities all over the house. It's exhausting for caregivers because they try to stay up to keep them safe because houses are dangerous. There are sharp knives, there's fire, there's heat, there's pools and tubs. And there are washers you can overload and flood the house. There's any number of ways you can make mayhem, you know, when you have dementia without meaning to. And so if someone is sundowning, then clearly there is a problem. And you you really can't reset that. Once it's there, it's there. You just have to cope. But that's also very tiring. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like, you know, one big piece of it for the caregiver is sort of like, um, I, the only word I can think of is like fighting with the person they're trying to take care of to allow them to be a caregiver or to, you know, try to off prevent. You want to let your loved one have agency and some control, but you have to keep them safe. And there's this constant, almost tension, unless the caregiver can move into that space of there's no point in arguing. If I get frustrated with having the same conversation five times in five minutes, I'm just going to go to the bathroom and splash some water on my face. We're going to laugh some. I'm going to get on social media and not make fun of my loved one, but I'm going to you know, post some of the funny things so that I can bring some humor to it, but people can see what's going on too. I blogged so that I could see what happened later. That helped me a lot. There's also a wonderful woman named Tipa Snow, T-E-E-P-A, um, snow like the driven snow. And she's not, she has a mouth like I do. And I am editing my words here because we're on a podcast. She doesn't. She's got videos on YouTube and they are all about how to cope with dementia behaviors. She's got a couple of books out too now, but she's, the, the videos are so helpful. And she also does travel the country giving seminars and webinars that tend to be free which are hugely helpful. I would recommend any family facing dementia, follow her carefully because she really does tell it like it is. She will talk about how hard it is to get someone in the shower and that you, you know, they don't want to get in the shower because they don't understand the concept of water coming from the air. And there's a barrier to get into the shower, you know, where the door might attach or there's a curtain and it's opaque and that's scary. And they may not even know you and the room is crowded and then the, so the stranger is trying to take their clothes off of them and stick them in a box. You can see how Makes well that, went. that they would want to resist that. Right. And especially anyone who's got a history of incarceration or anybody who survived the camps yeah. during the Nazi era or any other kind of involuntary like that, hostage or abduction. Right. Yeah. Right. But nobody wants to get naked with somebody they don't know and to get into water falling from the sky. That's kind of weird and unnatural. And so she talks about, you just talk them gently into the shower. And if they've got their clothes on, they're going to get uncomfortable and take them off. And then you're going to stand there with a towel to say, when you get done, I got this nice, big, fluffy, warm towel for you to dry off on and fresh clothes waiting here. You work with it. Very compassionate. She talks about the the fun and games of toileting because not to get graphic, but toileting is a real problem with dementia toward the middle and later stages. And sometimes 
things land on walls that probably shouldn't. And it looks rather like you work in a locked facility with children who are very emotionally challenged. And so she talks about that and how to manage folks who forget where toilet paper goes, because that's part of dementia. I will never forget that moment at my house. Right. So there's all kinds of things. And she just tells it like it is. And I appreciate that about her. So dementia requires just a whole lot of boots on the ground, but good communication between the various people who are in and out, if it's a family system. And if there's one person doing the care, if they can keep that communication going with the outside family and they can learn to accept what they're being told, not fight it, that's huge because lots of dementia families end up suing each other. There's Mm -hmm. the primary caregiver who the typical scenario is moves in with the surviving parent or both parents, cares for them. It costs money to take care of them. They have to quit their job to take care of them. And then the rest of the family attacks because they're spending what they perceive as their inheritance. And they also, then the minute the last parent dies, they evict the child who has no place to go because they've given up their own housing and they have no income while the rest of the siblings have been working and putting their own money away. It's probably 60% of the people in my support group have experienced that. And that's not unusual. And they're also just having finished being part of a major traumatic experience that they need to be able to recover from. Yeah. Right. Right. I have worked with more survivors just trying to find them a rented room where they can go for a little while and just, you know, crawl into a blanket fort for a little bit while their brothers and sisters, you know, pick over the estate, Mm -hmm. right? There's, there's a lot because when people have to mention, they also they're very aware they're changing, but they can keep it together for short time periods. So if somebody comes to visit they haven't seen in a while, even if they don't know who they are anymore, they will pull it together and make a nice sweet visit and then fall apart or go to sleep once that's over. And the people who are visiting report back, I don't know what you're talking about. She was so sweet. She's fine. She offered me cookies. She right? knew me. We had a pleasant visit. Mm-hmm. Everything was normal. That is such a hard thing because then the like siblings or the extended family are all dis- in disagreement with one another about what's really happening. And they go after the caregiver, right? And, and it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. They do that at the doctors too, which is why you have to have a medical notebook. So when you go to the doctor... I learned to write a complete summary of everything that had happened. And I would sign my wife in on the doctor's front desk and slide over my letter of the most recent activities uh, with so big that they bold, could tell the doctor. doctor needs to read this before he sees us. And then when he would do the MMSE, I would position myself behind her so she couldn't look at me for help, but where he could see me so he could make eye contact and, you know, check the veracity of what was being said. I do that with my mom now as well. You have to be able to give that person the ability to have those conversations with their doctor, but also correct what's not true. Right. Right. My mom went to the doctor recently and my wife took her and she told the doctor, you know, I might as well be vegetarian. I never eat red meat. And my wife was behind her, you know, making like a slitting motion under her throat because my mom will eat a steak. If you put it in front of her on other days, she won't eat it all as long as it's heavily salted. You know, and she said, and I never eat sweets. And my wife made that motion like, yeah, she's absolutely lost all of her stuff. That's not at all true because my mom will eat ice cream before she'll eat anything because it's sweet right? and it's cold and it tastes good, right? So you have to develop alternative skills to get around, but also give them the ability to converse so that they still feel like they have some control. But yeah, it takes a lot of effort on the part of the caregiver and the family to connect with one another and to share information, 
and to create a system that works. If you're lucky enough to have a family to work together. Yeah. If you're the only child, you're, you really get hammered Mm -hmm. because it's all up to you. Right. I think we need it part two because we don't have enough time to keep going, but I have a million more questions. So I hope that you might consider coming back. Yes. Yeah. This is something that therapists need to know about because when you are sitting with a client who says, I've got anxiety and having panic attacks, you, you need to dig a little bit and find out what's behind it. But part of what I hope you're looking for is, is this going on somewhere in their family? And they're responding to this. We don't remember to ask about this stuff. Oh, my mom's a little bit difficult. Tell me more about that, right? Because it's it may not be that. It may be dementia and they just don't know about it. And the therapist doesn't know enough to recognize it. Yeah. So we need to have therapists who know how to see dementia. It helps those of us who've been in hospitals. We see this stuff. We know what to listen for and look for, but most therapists don't have that experience and they need the the information to work from. Yes. I mean, I have a little bit from my experience in the hospital, but I will say that I've learned a ton from talking with you today and definitely will want to follow up and do a part two. But for now, where can people find all of the good stuff you're doing? You can find jilljohnsonyoung.com on the web. And that has links to courses that are recorded that you can download and provide CEs. There is one about dementia, but there's also on another page, resources for every kind of loss and every kind of dementia. So if you are dealing with pet loss, you can go to that tab and pet loss is there because I'm still a social worker and I think we should all have all the resources possible. And if we've got them, we need to share them. Um, You can also find the rebelliouswidow.com, which actually has the first chapter of the book available for download and for download for free. It has the actual how to create that medical notebook. So anybody can download it. You can buy them online, but you know, from a variety of sources, this one's just print the page, put it in a notebook, organize it it's free. And then it's also got some um, resources for doing grief work as well on your own. Cause oh, I'll never stop so being a social much. worker and we should have the stuff. <laughs> yes. And I mean, we'll come back to this, but you know, in this time in particular with, you know, all of the people that have been lost with COVID, the grief is grief is an overwhelming everywhere. thing right now. Yeah. You can also find me at centralcounselingservices.com. Okay. That's my private practice. I am pretty booked, but I also have staff that I've trained in doing grief and I'm super proud of them for that. Cause when you work for me, you're going to get some grief training. It's just a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jill, thank you so much for being my guest today. I have really enjoyed this conversation and I can't wait to follow it up with part two. Like hopefully we'll be able to do them back to back when it comes out. That would be awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you. Therapist, I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about why I created Trauma Therapist Network and how I hope that it will benefit your clients and you. Pretty simple. There has not been one place to find information about trauma, find a trauma therapist, and for trauma therapists to find networking, training, connection, support, practice building all in one place. So for example, as a trauma therapist, you can have a Psychology Today profile and they are definitely the the biggest, broadest therapy directory that exists. They've been around the longest, but what they don't do is they are not specific in what do you do that makes you a trauma therapist. So if a therapist on Psychology Today says, I specialize 
specialize in trauma and PTSD, but when you look down their listing, it also says that they specialize in like every other mental health disorder that exists. And how do you know that they have the knowledge and experience and that they are the person that can help you with your trauma? There's no way to know. So that's why I made Trauma Therapist Network. And initially, I felt that it would be useful to create a site for people wanting to learn about trauma and find a trauma therapist all in one place. But what I didn't account for is that therapists are missing out on connection and community even more during this pandemic. So once I realized that this was something that could be added into Trauma Therapist Network to make it a true community for therapists... I decided to go ahead and add in some content. So starting in March, Trauma Therapist Network Community for Therapists includes your listing that lets people know how you work with trauma. It includes once a month, an hour-long training workshop on a topic related to trauma, and once a month, an hour-long Q&A workshop about various topics related to our work, including practice building. And I'm going to bring in some outside practice building experts to help with that. One time per month, we will have a call focused on therapist self-care, an experiential practice of self-care for one hour per month. And once a month, we will also have case consultation calls. So I'm working on putting all that together in the membership community. The new content starts in March, so you can sign up in February, and in March, you'll have access to that. Registration closes on February 28th for any new members. So if you are thinking of joining, this is the time. Just go on over to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com, and you can take a look around the site, look at the listing. Check out some of the amazing therapists that are going to be in community with you and who will be learning with you and learning from you and you will be learning from them. I'm so excited about this and I'm so grateful to all of you who have already joined. So if you're thinking about becoming a member of Trauma Therapist Community, don't wait. Just head on over there to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com and sign up. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank <laughs> you.